Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. So this episode is going to be one for the history books because we are going to talk about one of my favorite movies of all time, if not my favorite movie of all time, and that is Back to the Future. And I have on the show Brad Gilmore, who just recently wrote the book Back from the Future, a celebration of the greatest time travel story ever told. And I just can't wait to get into this because this has been a movie that has really influenced a lot of what I've done. You'll note we did a couple stories on the DeLorean and I, you know, I, on my other podcast, FGGBT, we've covered several of the Back to the Future technologies. So this has just been a franchise that I think was way ahead of its time, no pun intended. So I can't wait to get into this. And Brad, so Brad Gilmore has done quite a few amazing things himself. He hasn't traveled through time, at least I don't believe so. But he hosts the ESPN radio show, The Hall of Fame with Booker T and Brad Gilmore. Uh, Booker T is, of course, the five-time, 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 five-time world champion. Brad is also the ring announcer and commentator for Booker T's Reality of Wrestling, a wrestling promotion down in Houston, Texas. And we're going to find out he's also a rapper. So that's going to be very exciting to get into. First of all, Brad, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, so let me, let me ask you this. Do, do you like to go, are, are you a Brad? Are you like, uh, do, you have a, do you have a wrestling nickname? Are you Brad Kilmore Gilmore, the Gil Gilberg 2, you know, the big BG, anything? No, Brad Gilmore works. Brad That's Gilmore? Fine. All right. Well, I, I got to tell you, I feel like in some ways you and I are living weird parallel lives. I saw this movie Coherence last night, which is a great movie, and it's about parallel dimensions, and sometimes you can have people, you know, you can live, you can watch realities where you're living your best life and realities where you're, you know, someone's taking a dump on you. And I feel like in some ways you're living like the life that I wanted, man. I, I, I went to school to be into pro wrestling. Like I, I went to school to work oh, really? in pro wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, I, I've always loved pro wrestling and you're, you're in it. You're working in it. Uh, you kind of got into it, I guess, in the attitude era. I, I'm, I'm an old school Hulk Hogan guy, but what, what, what kind of brought you into that? Let's talk about that really quickly. Um, so, yeah, I was a wrestling fan when I was a kid, obviously, as most people. I think everyone's a wrestling fan at first when they're a child. But I remember just being in my living room at my parents' home in uh, outside of Houston, Texas, and uh, flipping through channels, and I saw this bald guy with a goatee that just was like, who is that? It was Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, yeah. And then you see Rock and, and Undertaker and Kane and Mankind and Big Boss Man and the Road Dog. And, I mean, the, the list goes on and on of all the people who were there. So I was a fan, and then, you know, I fell out. Um, kind of when I got maybe in the later in junior high, early high school, kind of fell out of wrestling. I wasn't watching it. I had other interests at the time. Um, music was big. Um, the opposite sex was even bigger. Right. Uh, of course, you, you, sure. you find you find yourself spending a lot of time thinking about that. So um, I fell out of wrestling, and then it was like 2012. I uh, I got up one morning and I did I think what all of us do now is we grab our phone and we say okay let me check my notifications who needed me when I was asleep do I, am I going to feel important by waking up to a bunch of emails right or, so I grab my phone and I start looking through it and I'm on Twitter 
And I saw some from WWE. I'm like, oh, man, I wonder what's going on at WWE. I haven't watched in so long. So I'm scrolling through their timeline, and I see some from Booker T. And I'm like, oh, man, I love Booker T. Booker T's from Houston. I'm from Houston. The first wrestling event I ever went to live was in the Toyota Center in Houston, Texas. Booker T versus Rey Mysterio for the world title was the main event. So Booker was my guy. So I click on Booker's profile, and I just saw a tweet. He's like, hey, I have this wrestling company in Houston looking for an announcer. Email this guy if you're interested. And so I was like, oh, wow. You know, I was doing some online radio stuff at the time. Before it was podcasting, it was online radio. And I said, well, you know, I mean, I do a little bit of something, so let me just send an email. So I sent an email over this guy named Paul Cook, didn't think about it, and three weeks later I get a call from L.A. number, and it was this Paul Cook, and he was like, hey, Booker wants to meet you tomorrow. Can you meet? And I was like, uh, yeah, absolutely. So I um, I go to the gym to meet him, and he, he actually got called out for a wrestling event for WWE, so he wasn't there. And uh, they had me audition anyway for the commentary role, and it was me or one other guy, and I did awfully, terribly. I couldn't remember the names <laughs> moves. I, I yeah. I made a Donnie and Marie Osmond joke. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't even know why. Country, a little bit rock and roll joke. Awful. So Whoa. I bombed it. And then um, it just so happened their ring announcer, she got strep throat that week and couldn't <laughs> ring announce. Yeah. So they yeah. called me the next day and they said, can you ring announce? Have you ever done that before? And what I learned in entertainment was, yeah, yep, absolutely. absolutely. Yep. You speak French? Yes, I yep. do. Mm-hmm. So I said, I do it all the time, high school, football, whatever. And so they brought me in, and you know, I've been in since. You know, so that was 2012, and I've been working with Booker at Reality of Wrestling ever since then. Wow, that is a crazy story. It's amazing how many people. You know, it's such a theme, especially in entertainment, where you just have to be ready. I mean, people fall out all the time. If even if you don't get the thing you want, or you think you did poorly, you know, someone's as soon as someone trips and falls over, there's ten people ready to step over them and take their position. I mean, it's it's yeah. pretty cool. That's crazy. It just, it just happened that way. And then Booker and I, for some reason, even though our stories aren't, you know, similar really in any way, especially in our upbringings, you know, or all the, everything, like you would think that we wouldn't have any similarities together, but we, we got to, you know, we got to become really close. And I just respected him and everything that he's built on his own. And he reminded me a lot of my father and grandfather, just kind of from the mud. I'm going to get it however I have to get it. And um, he and I became close. And then when he got the opportunity to do a radio show in Houston, he called me and he was like, hey, you want to do this show with me? And I said, let's go. The first show happened to be on Valentine's Day. So I had to explain that to my lady like, hey, right. um, I know it's in the evening during Valentine's. But this is kind of a big deal. <laughs> but uh, she understood. She always does. Right. And um, and yeah, so we just hit it off, man. And he's somebody now that I talk to on a daily basis. Um, multiple times throughout the day, business or otherwise, you know, we're just always in communication. That's crazy. And I got to tell you, you learned a couple things there. I mean, if if your lady had been opposed to that suggestion, I mean, you have a lot of information there as well, you know, for That's whatever right. you wanted to do with that information. That's <laughs> your right. Your choice. Uh, I mean, and you're also, I mean, if I'm, you know, I don't want to pull into your past too deeply, but you're also, you were also in a band. I believe you were a rapper in, in 2011, which is the name yeah. of the band. Um, <laughs> still putting out music from what I understand. Um, how yeah. did you get involved in that? What's still going on with that? Yeah, man, that's funny. Um, you're the first person to ask me that in a long time. So, um, yeah, that's really how I got my start in, in the entire entertainment sphere was I, I was with my friend Avery and, and we, um, he was a drummer 
And I always wanted – so I grew up in Texas. And when you grow up in Texas, there's one thing that you listen to all the time, and it's country music. Now, a lot of people don't like country music, but you're kind of – it's kind of a religion out here in Texas. Mm -hmm. So I always wanted to be like a singer, and I thought that would be really cool, except I couldn't carry a tune. So um, at the time – Rapper it is. <laughs> yeah. It, at the time in Houston, it was a, it was a renaissance of the hip-hop genre, and a lot of people from the city got national recognition. Guys that I don't know if you've heard of, but guys like Paul Wall or Mike Jones, Chameleonaire, Slim Thug, these are all guys who I'm not that out of it, Brad. Go on, dude. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I just feel like Houston's our own microcosm. Yeah, sometimes. yeah, of course I know. But that. um those guys were all big, so we thought, man, what if we do like a hip hop thing? And you know, one thing led to another. We got a record deal, um, and put out a couple albums, did a tour or two, and it's what led me to radio. Because I went to go do an interview for the we, as a band. We went to go do an interview at this local radio station, and the program director called me aside after the interview, and he was like, have you ever thought about doing radio? And I was like, no, never crossed my mind. And he said, I think that you would be really good. Uh, would you have any interest in doing like a show here? And I was like, yeah. And that's how really the radio thing came out, and then the wrestling came after that. So I do owe it all to 2011, and we still get together from time to time and lay it down, put, lay it down on wax. But, um, yeah, man, that, that was how it all started for me. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, it's, it's funny. I forgot to mention, you know, I, I, I'm from Chicago. I live in LA now, but I'm from Chicago and I drove down to Houston. My first time in Houston was to see WrestleMania 17 live. Uh, greatest regret of my life is not, I had tickets to WrestleMania 18 in Toronto and I did not go. And that is one of the biggest, like, <laughs> one of the biggest regrets Mark of my Hogan. life. Dude, uh, it's, stop. I, I, it's bringing up bad memories already. But 17, everyone says, is the best WrestleMania of all time. Yeah, yeah I, it depends on who you – I mean, there's, you know, the best is we'll get into. I swear to God, we're going to get into the Back to the Future, which we still got to talk about because we've got a lot of best of conversations going on there. But, yeah. yeah, I think WrestleMania, it was great. I mean, without question, it was great. But, I mean, the Rock Hogan match is was the most – I've never seen a crowd – I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about what the crowd was like. I could not imagine what it was like to be there. I mean, when you get a pop that blows off the roof on a headlock, Hulk Hogan gets a headlock as the first move, and the crowd goes bananas. You think people are going to faint and die in the audience. You know you're doing something right. You've built it up. That that match is what I tell people to watch. When they, when they come into the wrestling industry or they say, hey, why do you like wrestling? What is it about wrestling? I say go watch Hogan versus Rock at WrestleMania, mm -hmm. and you will understand. And you understand also how incredible both of those guys are as performers. Right. Because right. to go out there with one plan in mind, and then the audience switches on you, and to be able to switch on the fly and still put on a classic. Yeah. Those are these you're the best of all time. Yeah. Obviously. No, I agree with you completely. I mean, it is, is the, the match to watch. We're going to talk about a couple things in your book, some of your early life that I think may have affected your path in life, if I'm not to psychoanalyze you. But from what I understand, you had a bunk bed, but no siblings, and you went to Edgar Allan Poe Elementary. Did these kind of form the, the, you know, did this have an effect on your brain development as you went on? Uh, perhaps, you know, so I, I have siblings, but they're all older than me, right? They're all like much older. My oldest brother and I are 20. 23 years apart, wow. which is a pretty stark age difference. So I did have bunk beds, but I had no sibling close enough in age to share them with. So I'm not exactly sure why I had them. Yeah. Uh, I guess I was always longing for a uh, <laughs> another sibling or, or a relationship to be closer yeah. to somebody. But uh, yeah, and then Edgar Allan Poe, obviously when you go there, you, you study a lot about him as a writer and him as a thinker. And uh, he is a very interesting human being to delve into um 2020 standards he might be a little odd 
But uh, if you judge him back on his work, what a prolific thinker mm -hmm. and writer and storyteller. So I don't know if that had anything to do with my career trajectory, but I'm sure it didn't ha it didn't hurt. Right. So they wait, that was Edgar Allan Poe Elementary. So they still indoctrinated you into poism and in that early on? I mean, that's like Yeah, I mean the the mascot was the Ravens. We we had in every classroom there was the entire uh, Raven poem. Wow. Um, we got the Telltale Heart. Very odd. I know. It was very odd. I know. Odd. I got a lot of people who are into the goth scene, and they would have loved to have gone to Edgar Allan Poe Elementary School. Uh, okay, so let's get into this now, man. Enough, enough of this. Enough of the interesting stuff. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I love learn, learning how people kind of came to to where they are. And and Back to the Future, you and I kind of came to the same movies. I think we have the same passions. And I'm going to argue you may not have spoken to anyone who is as knowledgeable on Back to the Future as you are so i'm very excited to talk about this this is my favorite franchise of all time i mean i love time travel and you know as i mentioned before i've got another podcast where we've profiled a lot of the kind of this the hidden gadgets in in that we haven't done doc's mind reading machine that's going to be next but we, we've done a lot of this stuff i was i was introduced to the series through the books do you know about the novelizations and have you read them i do have the novelizations i haven't read them i haven't read the third one entirely I did read the first two, um, and I've read. I remember reading the first one. I got it maybe in, I don't know, when I was in middle school, uh -huh. and it was what I did a book assignment on, and the cover's now <laughs> torn off from reading it. Out of two yeah. yeah, so that's so you found them through the books. Yeah, well, I, yeah, well, I remember reading. So in my uh, when I was a kid, there was there was the Back to the Future book, and it was it was in the library, and it had a hard piece of plastic. It was a soft cover book. But it had a hard piece of plastic protecting it. And I remember I, it was one of those books. It was the first time I remember having that evil thought of like, I could just steal this book. I can't get it anywhere else. I'm just a kid. Maybe if I just left the library with it. You know, I remember yeah. thinking that. I never did. But I checked it out a, a million times. I think that that is how I, I – and then I bought – there was when I was in elementary school, they had this thing called troll books. They would send out these little pieces of paper and you would f fill it out and buy the books. And that's how I bought two and three. And what I loved about the novelizations, first of all, that they had novelizations of movies was really weird. It seems like a reverse trajectory of what people in Hollywood do now, which is go from novel to movie. But they also had lots of really key details that were not in the movie outright, but filled in a lot of gaps and helped me understand the storylines a little bit better. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is always interesting to see really the opposite way. Because I remember reading Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, mm -hmm. or the Philosopher's Stone, mm -hmm. if you're a, a, yeah. a European listener. Right. And I remember reading it, and then when the movie came out, I'm like, let's go. I'm ready to see Harry Potter. And they changed like a few things, and that's the first thing that I think of. So I wonder how, how it was for you reading the book and then seeing the film. Did you say, oh, wait a minute, that's not how the story is, or that wasn't in the – that's not supposed to be there. No, it's an interesting question. I like that because what they did in the books, and this is, I think Craig Sean Gardner is the one who wrote them because he also wrote the Batman novelization, which I also had. I was kind of a nerd back then. Uh, but what, what's great about the books is because they started with the screenplay. So they were just expounding upon the screenplay itself and, 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 you know, filling in the gaps and showing in all the details. When you go from a book to a movie, you have to deal with the author and a different screenwriter and, and all that. And, and they, they have to change things for the movie. The movie is really like a shaved down version of a book. And the books in the Back of the Future case were just kind of like an expanded version of the movie. Okay. So, so to answer your question, I, I really enjoyed reading the books after seeing the movies, especially because there were little things 
that they mention that you don't really know. Like when Biff, like in Back to the Future 2, when Biff's running around with the almanac, they talk about his, you know, how he's thinking with the almanac and why he has it and how he doesn't really care about it. And you see that in the movie where he kind of puts in his back pocket, puts the ooh la la cover over, but they have this kind of nice, um, expository writing that tells you exactly what he's thinking when he gets it, has it in his pocket, and then as he gets more attached to it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is interesting how much more detail you can go in into a textualized version of the film and, and really read what what you end up seeing. But the um, the novelization, now you made me want to go back and revisit them. Now you I, should, I, have to, I really have them in a drawer, like in the other room. So I need to pull them out and read. <laughs> now I'm going to look at it through those through those lenses. Well, here's what. So here's what I did. I I, I wanted to kind of talk back, real Back to the Future stuff with you because I so in preparation I watched these movies back to back to back, and mm-hmm. this was really the first time I'd done it in a long time. I've seen the movies, you know. Obviously, I saw the first one a million times. I saw the second movie. This is kind of interesting. I saw the second movie at my library on a film reel. They showed it. I think the same summer it came out. I don't really know how that worked, but I remember going to my local library, the same library that had the novelization of Back to the Future, and saw it, saw someone with a film projector and watched Back to the Future two for the first time. That's crazy. That way, it's, that's crazy. <laughs> I know. It's really weird. But one of the things, you know, in some of the other interviews I've heard you talk about it in the book there's a lot of this conversation of what's the best back to the future movie and i think i think definitively i'm going to say this here i think definitively back to the future one is the best movie i don't i i think objectively you can't argue that but i think you can argue what's your favorite movie and i think there are several reasons for that but i kind of want to get your take on that first yeah so um I agree. First off, the first Back to the Future is a perfect movie. There's there's really no gripes about it. It's it's the best, most fulfilling, fun story out of the three. And like I said, they knocked it out of the park first try. Um, the favorite thing is interesting because my favorite as a child was the third one. I love Back to the Future 3. And again, I don't know if that's because I'm from Texas and Western right. was a thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I really loved Back to the Future 3 when I was a kid. I watched that one the most. And then – um, and, and it's really to me – like a um, – you know, Daniel, when you talk about whether it's your Mount Rushmore of wrestlers mm-hmm. or your top five dead or alive rappers, mm-hmm. it changes all the time. You know, you might have the same guys, but you might say, okay, now number one is, is Pac or now number one is Hogan or, or The Rock or whomever, right? So I think that's how it is for me in Back to the Future is number one's the best, but when I talk about my favorite, sometimes it's, it's one, sometimes it's three. Recently – Two has been getting a lot of play in my mind and a lot of love, and I think that it's now kind of looked over a little too much for how influential that film really is. Mm-hmm, Best mm-hmm. movie to come out in 1989. I know that's controversial, but that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I just I just think that it's a it's an ever-fluid list, though, because I find things in them all that I like more and more and more. Like I think that part one and part three are the most similar when you look at their stories of Doc and Marty are stuck in the past – with no clear way to get to the future, and they have to come up with some accidental way of figuring out how to get back there. Like we know the train's going to be there at this time. We know lightning's going to strike mm-hmm, at this time, mm-hmm. but we have to make sure that everything goes perfectly and smoothly. This is our only opportunity to do that. Two doesn't really have that. I mean it does in the sense of we have to stop you know, Biff and, and, and prevent this alternate 1985 or what have you. But I think one and three are the most similar in my mind. And even Marty being distracted by the relationship with his mother 
and and Crispin Glover's character George in the first film, but really his mom was was a main distractor yeah. in the first film, and then in the third film it's Clara Clayton is the main distractor right. for Doc. Right. So there's all these parallels and similarities between those two. Yeah, I think that's a. I didn't re, I didn't really notice that, but I love that observation because it also shows one of the great things that they do in these movies is show you how history repeats itself over and over and over again, and I love that theme. With with Back to the Future 1, what I like about it is they set these rules up for time travel. They explain time travel better, and in Back to the Future 2, they explain time travel better. Well, they explain time travel better than anything I've ever heard in, in Back to the Future 1. They explain alternate futures uh, better than anything I've ever heard in Back to the Future 2. What bothers me about Back to the Future 2 and 3, number one, from a tone standpoint, they are in. They're incredibly different. They're obviously influenced by Zemeckis' Roger Rabbit days, and they're very broad. The characters are much bigger, whereas Back to the Future 1 is more. The characterizations, the, the portrayals are much more rooted in reality. They're very relatable, and I really like that. I don't love the big stuff. Biff goes from being a bully with some homicidal tendencies when he tries to – I forgot that he tries to kill him when, in the skateboarding scene. I forgot that he actually does try to ram him with his car. So so my my, my argument went out the window, but, but in, in Back to the Future 2, he – becomes like a homicidal maniac. I mean, he's really off the deep end. Uh, and in Back to the Future 2, they break their own time travel rules, which I really don't like. So the first time that they do it, in the beginning of the movie, they already they establish that you need to fill up the the, flu- the uh, Mr. Fusion. You need in, in the first movie, they say one rod, one trip, right? And that's why he gets stuck in right. 1955. When he comes blasting at the end of the sec- first movie and they redo it in the beginning of the second movie, he fills up Mr. Fusion and he, ha- you know, he has to go back. So th- when they're in 2015... Biff steals the time machine without refilling it, goes back into the past. He figures out that he ha- it has to get up to 88 miles per hour, that it can fly. He figures out how to go through time, ends up in 1955, no problem, and then gets back to 2015. He makes two trips without refilling Mr. Fusion. And that essentially breaks their rules of, of you know, having to fill up Mr. Fusion. And I know it's a movie, and I, and I get that. But what made the first movie so good is that it those attention to those little details that made it so great. Second one, really quickly, is at the end of that movie, they, he gets struck by lightning and goes through time without having to hit 88 miles per hour. So that's two major, major uh, diversions from their own rules. I hear you. I hear you, and I understand, and I think that you make great points, and they're all valid. However, the science behind Mr. Fusion I don't think was ever explicitly described within the context of the film. We did know with the plutonium chamber, you know, one trip, that's it, right? With Mr. Fusion, I was always led to believe the the reason he replaced the plutonium chamber was for that very purpose. He learned from his mistakes like every good inventor would do, and he said, you know what? That one trip, one thing, that doesn't really work out really well because Marty got stuck in the past. He finds Mr. Fusion, and that allows him – I guess we're led to believe at least, and we can make the assumption that that allows him to um, make multiple trips without having to refuel it. I do grant you that the Biff uh, part of it in Back to the Future 2, we're giving them a little. You know, um, The fact that he happens to know how to operate it, um, I, I I would say that the 1955 date, it could have been coincidental in the fact that the the time circuits were having some issues mm-hmm. and they could have already just been on that because that was their most recent trip you know, in the first movie. But that is a little strange and he gets up to 88 miles an hour. I'm thinking maybe old man Biff 
you know, his when he when he broke his cane, the the cane was forced on the accelerator and then just shot him to 90 miles per hour and he didn't realize how he did it. And then he thought, well, let me just recreate what I did. That is giving the movie a lot. Um, a lot of reaches there, Brad. A lot, a lot there, there were a few. Yeah, yeah. There were a few. And then the second part was you said – Getting struck um, by lightning. Oh, the struck yeah. by lightning. Yeah, again, I just chalked that up to the, the flux capacitor and the time circuits were having problems and some issues that circumvented the need to go 88 miles per hour. And the lightning was thus that it was over 1.21 gigawatts, and it just sent him right back to 1885. I do realize that those are some nitpicks that you can do. Um, nitpicks? But, those are those are huge. Those are gigantic. I think those are nitpicks. I don't, but see, see, those are gigantic for somebody who thinks like you with the technology podcast. Y'all are looking at this. Those, those are things that I think that the, that the layman doesn't. But I do agree in the first one. Even if you're trying to pick nits, you're not going to find them. So that is a difference. I, I do agree. H- however, they're great movies. <laughs> no, they, they, they are great movies. I mean, that's spoken like a true Back to the Future loyalist for sure. I, I mean, I do have to take issue with the nitpicking with the 88 miles per hour. That is like – that is the thing everyone remembers. You can say whatever you want about the Biff going back, and I'll, I'll give you that for argument's sake, but – just standing in one spot and then getting struck by lightning and going back into time. The 88 miles per hour was key to activating the time circuits. So well, let me ask you this then. Let me ask you this. Yeah. With the hover conversion, I'm assuming the engine has to be running for it to be flying in the air. And I would imagine that would take a lot more RPM to jack up a DeLorean in, in a hover situ- in a, a hovering above a street. Yeah. How do we know that he wasn't, even though he was stationary – the engine wasn't at 88 miles per hour, just just based on the RPMs needed to get it up into a in, to hover. I mean, it's it's an interesting thought. I mean, what what this is really what my the fundamental point I'm saying is what I like about the first movie is they everything's explained and they follow their right. rules. And in this one, you have to make a lot of leaps. And and I I think that that makes it less of a solid movie. Is it enjoyable? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I love watching these movies. Uh, and one of the other things as I was watching these. I really was going with a whole different frame of mind and kind of having a conversation that I don't know if anyone else has ever had before. But when when I watched these movies, when I was finished watching them, I realized a couple of things. We don't really know a lot about the protagonists of this movie. We don't really know that much about Marty's life, except that he has Jennifer. Uh, he has – we know his family, obviously – uh, that's it. We don't really know his friends. We know he plays rock and roll. We don't know a lot about his school. We don't know anything. Doc, we know nothing about how he, we know he had money and then lost it somehow. Uh, we don't know what he's a doctor of. He says he's a, you know, a student of all the sciences. I don't even know what that means. We don't really know why he's hanging out with a high schooler. And this is one of those movies that got away with this in the eighties, like meatballs, where you have like a much older person hanging out with a, a high schooler. This would not fly today <laughs> in today's, you know, in today's world. These are just some of the things that just struck me when I watched them that like, man, we don't even really know Mark and Doc at all. Yeah, I, and, and I've heard that over the years. Now, they've done their best in subsequent releases, whether it be comic books or whatever, to try to fill in some of that continuity. There is a um, – I think it's a video on YouTube is from script to screen or something like that. I think it's the series, and they do one on Back to the Future. And at the end of the movie, you actually see Marty – there's a, a package from Marty – in in the um in the McFly house where he was receiving his demo tape back from the record company that he's in kind of fulfilling that uh prophecy if you will 
Um, cause I actually think people say that Marty doesn't grow or doesn't learn anything. There's no character arc for him in Back to the Future 1. I actually disagree with that. I think that Marty learns by proxy of George that you can't fear rejection and you need to stand up for yourself and do what you truly believe is right and what you want. And that's what that package at the end of the movie really, I think, symbolizes. But we don't know a whole lot on the onset. In the comic books, they did explain the relationship between Marty and Doc, and it was something as simple as Doc had an amplifier and Marty played a guitar, and he and he needed a part for his amp, and the guy was like, oh, I sold it to this doctor mm-hmm. down the street, and then he goes and meets him, and they become friends or what have you. Um, I don't particularly like – I'm not in love with that explanation, That's but terrible. I'll accept it. Yeah. Uh, I'll accept it. Yeah. I'm not in love with it, but I, but I accept it. But yeah, I think that the, the backstory really that you needed to know is – I think that Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis were telling you everything that you needed to know about Marty by telling you about his family, by telling you about Lorraine and George. George being this pushover dad who's been bullied by the same guy for 30 years. His mother, uh, what could have been, but now she's an alcoholic because his uncle's in prison. And There's all these, these family dynamics that I think shape whom he is, and to me, that explains his love of rock and roll. It's his escapism. His music is his escapism from his current reality. And um, that's why if you realize his goal really in the movie is to get his girlfriend to a lake and sleep in the back of a truck right. with some sleeping bags because, again, <laughs> he's trying to escape his current position, mm-hmm. his, his current um, family situation. It's always about escapism. That's why I think that his fascination with Doc and their friendship is 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 even more evident because they're trying to, again, escape. Marty wants to use this Doc doctor who has all these wild ideas and these inventions and he's got this big – amplifier and they hang out and they talk to again to escape his current family situation so i think that although it's not explicitly stated in the film it's in the subtext if you just kind of put your mind to it and accomplish anything (laughs) (laughs) no i think that that's right i just thought it was i mean i think all of that's a very accurate assessment I, i it's just weird when you watch the movies and you realize that like yeah i love their friendship they're cool i love watching them but man we don't 100%. know anything about them like it's 100%. it's a little strange um you know it's funny but what 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 else is great about this movie is when we talk about great movies are really hard to do i, I work in entertainment and i've seen you know whatever the pro, whatever the creative project is going from script to screen uh, and then sometimes back to book uh, but going from script to screen is very difficult and this what i love is so i want to go through just some of the trials and tribulations that it even took to get this movie on screen and how many different pitfalls along the way that they managed to jump over indiana jones style to even six have the movie be a success uh, so robert Semeckis, really quickly here's a little a tidbit for people so my undergrad school is NIU, Northern Illinois University. Robert Zemeckis went there for a semester because he's from the Chicago area, I believe. And so one of my professors really latched onto that and taught a whole film series on Zemeckis films. So I think I'm one of the few people in the country who's actually taken (laughs) collegiate level classes on all of Zemeckis' films. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but there's... I wish they would have offered that to me. No, it was a lot of fun, but you do see the transition right around this movie, um, you know, Roger Rabbit in this movie, and then into Forrest Gump, how he just goes from you know, early on a little more realistic films into a much more bigger, broader into his, what his style is really known for. Uh, but, but so they wrote this movie, great, great, you know, great, um, origin story. Bob Gale saw a yearbook, I believe his dad's yearbook and realized he and his dad wouldn't be friends. And that's kind of how the, the genesis of the idea came in. But if you don't mind, just walk me through how they went from that idea and then even getting the green light to get the movie made. 
Yeah, I mean, you hit it right on the head. Bob Gale was visiting his parents uh, back home, and he was going through his dad's closet or attic, excuse me, finds a yearbook, says, I didn't know my dad was a class president. That's crazy. I would have nothing to do with the class president of my graduating class. I wonder if my dad and I would have been friends in high school. Boom, there's the germ of the idea. He and Robert Zemeckis have been writing a lot. We talked a little bit off the air about Bordello of Blood or um, the uh, the Kolshak, the Night Stalker series. They've been working on stuff together, and they really – Loved the idea of doing a time travel movie, but just didn't really know how to do it. When Bob had this idea, he said, this is the mechanism we can use to write this time travel story. And they wrote it. Columbia Pictures liked it. Uh, a guy named Frank Price over there really enjoyed it. He, he commissioned them to write the script. They wrote it. It, did, you know, it didn't really turn out the way that they thought. There was kind of some up and down production stuff. And then um, they just continued to pitch it and pitch it and pitch it, the movie to different studios. And everyone was like, ah, you know – it's good. It's a fun family story, but we're in fast times in Ridgemont mm-hmm. High right now. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the that's the kind of film we want. We we want a little Animal House. Mm-hmm. We want something a little bit more edgy, a little more R-rated teen comedy. Porky's was out was, at that time too. Not to bring up, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. There you <laughs> good go. Old classic. So he he was like, that, everyone told them you should take this movie to Disney. Disney would love this movie. Um. So they said, okay, yeah, we'll go to Disney. So they took it to Disney. And Disney was like, are you out of your mind? We would never make this movie. This is a, this is an ancestral relationship between a, a son and mom. Right. There's no way we're putting this in the house of mouse. So again, they felt defeated. So finally, Robert Zemeckis was like, okay, look, I really would love to make this movie, Bob, but obviously it's not working out. I got to do something because they didn't have any real big successes, even with Steven Spielberg. I mean, they wrote 1941. It was kind of Spielberg's first movie that was panned mm-hmm. by critics and really the box office. So he said, uh, Robert Zemeckis said, I got to just do the next movie that comes across. It's a decent script that I can try to make something successful. That was Romancing the Stone, uh, which is a great, great movie. Kathleen Turner, Michael Douglas, Danny DeVito, real fun action adventure, kind of Indiana Jones vibe-ish to it. And it was a huge success. And then once he had that success, Universal was like, hey, what do you want to make next? And he's like, I got this movie, Back to the Future. And they're like, oh, we'd love to. And they said, well, we only want one guy to produce it. That's Steven Spielberg. Uh, Zemeckis and Spielberg and Gale, they were all friends with each other. They had worked together in a couple prior movies. And they resisted working with Spielberg initially when they wrote the script and were shopping it because they said, I don't want to be the guy you know, or the guys who only get their movies made because Steven Spielberg is their buddy and, and he's just throwing them a bone. So then they went back to him, and then they finally got the green light, finally, to make Back to the Future. They had to get the script over from Columbia, the rights, and they, they figured it all out. They got it, and green light was go. They had a mandate, though, where they had to make the movie by a certain time or the movie wouldn't be released. And then, you know, chaos ensues. Right. Well, let's talk about a couple highlights there uh, without getting bogged down in too much of the weeds. But there's some really fun stuff here. So they wanted they wanted Michael J. Fox. He was their number one guy. He was tied up with with family ties. Um, Gary Goldberg in this little part of the story is kind of the the villain for <laughs> for a little bit because he doesn't want Michael J. Fox to do that, which which I don't. Man, I, I feel like there would have been a bigger fight because when you're talking about a TV star getting into a big blockbuster movie, I feel like agents and lawyers would get involved and it would have made that happen. It wouldn't have been like handshake deals and phone calls, but but I don't know. But that was a really interesting part. So Michael J. Fox was out. They hired Eric Stoltz 
who filmed for five weeks, and the only reason they didn't use him is because he just wasn't hitting the comedy, right? I mean, this is this is kind of the reason for that. And and then for Doc Brown, they had Jeff Goldblum, Michael Keaton, John Cleese, Gene Wilder, Chevy Chase, Eddie Murphy. Is this true? Eddie is Murphy. that right? Yeah. Yeah. They, all those guys you just listed were on the call sheet. I have oh, – I don't know where it is. I have a book that has the entire call sheet for both characters. Wow, that's cool. All the people they, they called. Like Johnny Depp was one for Marty McFly. There's a lot of guys. C. Thomas Howe I think was another one. But with Doc – Jeff Goldblum, you could see, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That kind of makes yeah. sense. You know, he would have been a little young back then. It still makes sense. Um, Gene Wilder, I could have Definitely. seen. Eddie Murphy was a real stretch um, for Doc Brown. Uh, it would have been a really up- weird movie. But I, that's one of those weird choices because Christopher Lloyd wasn't a traditional choice. But if you went with Eddie Murphy, it would have been a totally different movie. But that would have been a very interesting take, I think, of all of them. You know, though. so – I did – so I have a Back to the Future podcast where we talk about stuff like this all the time and I did a, a, a show with my friend Kevin Smets where we recasted Back to the Future mm. for 2020 and like you know, who would be good options, who would get, be good choices. And we both thought that Eddie Murphy now would be a phenomenal Doc Brown. Wow, that's – Now in this stage in yeah. life, Eddie Murphy revisiting <laughs> and being Doc Brown we think would be awesome. I, I think so so, um, so I, 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 I think that – you're right, though. They they went to Gary Goldberg, and I don't even think that it reached Michael J. Fox's ears at the time. I mm. think it was, hey, you know, we're thinking about Michael. Would he be available? And um, I think one of the co-stars was out, whether whether it was a pregnancy or something to that, uh, something to that extent. So Gary was like, no, 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 no. I need Michael right now. We're the number one show on television. I can't lose my star, Alex P. Keaton. No dice. So they do go with Eric Stoltz. And you know, as everything does, it's somewhere between five and seven weeks. Everyone has their different – someone says six, some say seven, some say five. But they filmed for them for almost two months, right, let's just say, nearly. And they had almost completed the entire movie. I talked to Don Fullalove, who plays Mayor Goldie Wilson, and he said, I was done. I was already back home, off the set, wasn't thinking about it. Um, Christopher Lloyd said, I thought I was almost finished. Uh, Biff was done with his scene. Everyone was pretty much wrapping up, and they got to the point of production – where they started talking to each other like, hey, what do you got lined up next? Oh, cool. Is there a part for that in me? You think you could talk to your – they started getting to that small talk yeah. that you get on the set when you're close to sh- rapping. And Steven Spielberg sat down with Zemeckis and Gale and they watched the dailies. And you're right. Stoltz just wasn't hitting the comedy. He was playing it like an actual person would. Mm-hmm. If either one of us, you know, uh, Daniel, if we were sent back to the past and our mom had the hots for us and we were trying to figure out how to not – how to prevent being erased from existence, we'd probably be freaking out a little bit more. Right. We'd probably take this a little bit more seriously. Uh, even though Michael J. Fox was a great reactionary character com- comedically, I think that Eric Stoltz was thinking about this fourth dimensionally. And he was <laughs> right. thinking about it, you know, uh, as if it were real. And he was in, uh, he was a method actor as well. So he was in character the whole time. I think that probably rubbed a few people the wrong way. So they make the decision to fire him. And then they go back to see if Michael J. Fox was available Gary Goldberg says, okay, Michael can do it so long as he knows Family Ties always comes first. You have to film Family Ties. He can do this nights, weekends, afternoon, whatever, after Family Ties. So he, they said, sure. Michael J. Fox comes in. He says, I want you to read this script, but know that Family Ties comes first. So you're going to have to work 24-7 if you want it. Take it home, read it. Michael J. Fox grabs the envelope and throws it back on Gary Goldberg's desk and says, it's the best script I've ever read. Can't wait to do it. Mm-hmm. So Michael J. Fox accepts the role as Marty McFly without ever reading the script. And uh, <laughs> yeah. just because he's like, Steven Spielberg? Yeah, yeah sounds great. Right. 
and uh, and and then you know he became the perfect Marty McFly. Yeah, well, and it's it's so, so that happens, but that triggers a lot of, of of events, especially with Claudia Wells. Claudia Wells had an interesting thing because she was cast for it, then she gets a sitcom, so she gets she cancels, and they get Melora Hardin, who is who's amazing, but she's super tall, and so when they get Michael J. Fox back in, it's the tight's too different. Then Claudia Wells is done with her sitcom, so then she comes back to the show, and then Christopher Lloyd almost didn't even read the script. His wife encouraged him so he almost wasn't even in it i mean all of these near misses this is the kind of stuff that people don't this is the stuff that's exciting to me because all of these things if anything had gone wrong we wouldn't have this particular movie i mean and even one this is the weirdest thing in your book i think the weirdest little factoid is that sid sid scheinberg almost called it the spaceman from pluto he sent a legitimate suggestion and steven spielberg you know handled it amazingly played it off as a joke but he really wanted to was did he really want to name it spaceman from pluto is that that's, yeah. a, that's true. Yeah, he did. He did. So there. So in the movie, if you remember, they end up go, when Marty first goes back to 1955. He's on Old Man Peabody's Twin Pines Ranch, yeah. and he crashes into the barn. And when his son Sherman comes out and says, "You know, it's an alien. He already mutated into human form." And you look at the comic book; it's it's called Space Zombies from Pluto is the name of the comic book. Yeah. So when Sid Sheinberg was giving suggestions, which by the way, we always talk about the Spaceman from Pluto one because it is ridiculous yeah. and it's a terrible yeah. But he he did come up with some good ideas for the movie. Like he's he's one who named Lorraine. He, the, the name was something prior. He he chose Lorraine. It wasn't the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. It was the Springtime in Paris dance. It wasn't Doc Brown. It was Professor Brown. Einstein wasn't a dog. It was a chimp. He made all these changes, which all like you know worked out. And then he was like Spaceman from Pluto. That's the title. Right. That's the because t- he's like Back to the Future. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. How can you go Back to the Future? Makes no sense. Spaceman from Pluto. And then uh, Steven Spielberg essentially, you know. Made him think that we all they thought it was a joke, and he wrote it. Hey, thanks for the big laugh. We really appreciate it. Oh man, we needed that on set, and you know, just kind of ignored it. He never heard back from Sid Scheinberg, so he was like, "Okay, cool. We we, we were able to do it." Well, I love that they think it doesn't make. But, but subsequently, yeah. let me say this real quick, Daniel. There was a movie that came out, I think in 2018, maybe. Hmm. Um, it was called A House with a Clock in Its Walls. Okay. Jack Black was the, the star of it, and there's a scene where they're pulling up on a bus, and there's an old marquee for a movie theater on this street and the, the name of the movie playing on the marquee is spaceman from pluto oh that's so great it was, uh, <laughs> it was a little easter egg for back to the future Do you know whose idea that was to put that in i don't know i think um i think eli roth had some involvement with the movie huh. i believe so um no and back and, to the future fan is that I, i'm so assuming inside. i actually was on speaking of wrestling i was on chris jericho's podcast and uh he was the one who told me that eli roth probably had something to do with huh, that. Interesting. So, okay. I haven't looked into it much than that, but I did see it on the marquee and was like, oh, I know what that is. That's funny. Wow. You know, it, one of the tragedies of this series, I think, and, and, and to be perfectly honest with you, I think – maybe I'm wrong with this, but I think cr- the fact that Crispin Glover was not involved with the sequels was such a detriment to the movie for a couple of reasons. Number one – to me, the first movie is about Crispin Glover, obviously. Uh, the second movie is really about Biff. The third movie is about Doc. And he is so, I, when I re, when I rewatch, he's so good. He is so good in that movie. Now, I know his roles would have been limited in the other movies, but what it forced them to do for, 
for comic effect, I'm assuming, is it made them put Marty and Leah Thompson as basically all of, they played all of their ancestors, which got a little tired after a while. And if they were able to like mix in Crispin Glover in there or in some way, even if Crispin Glover was like the kid, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how you do it. I'm bad pitches here, but I feel like just getting him into the mix would have made that a little bit more interesting. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, what I loved about Crispin Glover's portrayal, and when I got to talk to him late last year, it was the one thing that I brought up to him was his ability, his physical presence on the screen was what made, to me, George McFly so interesting. The way that he had these, these beautiful movements uh, when he was doing his line readings and delivery just made that character. But and – I, and I try not to get into it in the book because I'm just not a very – I'm not a person who's really interested in, in drama too much or interested – I'm interested in hearing about it. I'm not interested in perpetuating it. So I didn't really get into the the rift between him and, and Bob Gale, which seems to continue to go to this day. You know, He and Zemeckis patched things up. They did Beowulf together. And so you know that, 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 that hatchet, if there was one, was buried. But you, know, you hear Bob Gale says – he wanted too much money. Crispin Glover said, well, it was something different. And, you know, he didn't end up being in the second film. I think that his role would have been larger in the second and third films than what we saw George McFly in because they would have had Crispin. Mm-hmm. And when they found out they weren't getting Crispin when they were making the sequel, that's when they decided, well, well hey, we're writers. Let's just write out George McFly. He's dead. Now he's dead in 1985. And that was the reason. The whole reason we had the George is dead in the alternate 1985 was because we didn't have Crispin Glover. So I think that his his role would have been bigger. Uh, it would have been funny to see him as an Irishman in the Old West. I think that he probably would have killed <laughs> yeah. that. He probably would have been fantastic yeah, yeah. as an Irishman in the Old West. Um, but he was really a true Jim in that first movie. And um, and I think that his his career is really based upon that performance. I think that everybody, when you have him, think about any movie you've seen Crispin Glover in subsequently – it's always some sort of an evolution of George McFly, even in playing the creepy man in the in the Charlie's Angels films. He was it was really like a grown up odd George McFly. So maybe that's just who Crispin is. I don't know. I've only talked to him once, <laughs> but I think that um, he it, the, the films did they suffer for him not being in it? You could you could make that argument by saying they would have been better with him in it. Um, however, I think that they handled it. Really well, and the actor who was brought in to play George McFly in parts two and three, Jeffrey Wiseman, who I've gotten to know really well over the years. You talk about somebody who had to take a gigantic task of of being of taking over this role of George McFly, even it being a smaller role in the second and third films. You have to take this iconic role from from Back to the Future and step into those shoes of one of the greatest portrayals of a character on screen. I, I have a lot of respect for what Jeffrey Weissman was able to pull off. But it's the reason, Daniel, that they did the um, – in Back to the Future 2 when we see George as an old man in 2015 and he's on the ortho lev mm-hmm, right. and he's upside yeah. down being dragged through the house. They did that to disorient you in any possible way from not knowing that was that was not Crispin Glover. Yeah. Well, I mean, I will say that his voice sounds like a caricature of George McFly. It's not as nuanced mm-hmm. as George was. And I listened to your interview with Crispin Glover, and I loved the question that you gave him because his answer is, I mean, it's such an actor's answer, but I love the idea of him getting into the mindset and then that turned itself into physical manifestations of that. Because you're right, and it's not even so much the, the I mean, he moves in a very specific way, but just... The, I've never seen anyone point 
and then look at what you're pointing at. There's a scene in the in the cafeteria where he points to Biff hitting on Lorraine. I mean, really, he's harassing her, sexually harassing her. Let's be honest. Sure. Um, <laughs> but he po- he points and then he looks up and then when they're in the diner. He's talking to Biff and he's turned around from the counter and then he grabs a thing of cereal and then puts the cereal up. You know, I've never seen anyone eat cereal that wasn't over a bowl. You know, I mean, it's just, yeah. just these weird little things that he did that just made him so particular that no one's ever done. And I, I really, I really enjoyed hearing him give that answer. That was, that was great. Wasn't it weird though in Back to the Future one when he goes into the diner for the second time before he's about to tell Lorraine, you're my density. Um, I don't know where this confidence, this irrational confidence of him saying, give me a milk, chocolate, (laughs) and then he slides it down and he grabs it and chugs it and slams it down. It did seem a little bit out of of base for George. But I did – I've always enjoyed giving a milk chocolate. When I was actually writing – when people were buying books and they were like asking me to inscribe them, I don't know what to put it yeah. inside a book sure. cover. So I, I would I would just said the same thing to about a hundred people, like drink this with a glass of milk, <laughs> chocolate. And I didn't know what to say, so that was my. Quote. I love that. That is so. I love that scene. That that particular moment. I I it didn't strike me as irrational until you mentioned it, but it totally is. It doesn't make any sense, and that is so. I laugh out loud every time I see it. My first, my high school girlfriend. I re, I remember this. We. I remember us watching that. And when he, so when he gets the milk and then he turns around and walks to Lorraine with his little notebook open, there's a guy sitting in, in a, in a, in a booth and he says, Cherry Coke. I don't, if, if you, I don't know if you know that. Yeah. So my girlfriend at the time, I remember her saying to me, that guy is loving life because he got to say a line in Back to the Future. He's just an extra who showed up for the day who happened to get picked up on the mic, you know, and it's like now he's in cinematic history. You know, I mean, it's yeah, it's yeah. kind of this cool moment. Uh, so th- you mentioned the podcast. So you started this podcast just to ring in Future Day. Is that right? So somewhat, yeah, it was 2015. I was listening to this podcast at the time called Signcast, and it was a podcast about Seinfeld. And I love Seinfeld. I'm a massive Seinfeld fan. You've seen all the episodes a million times. I actually talked to the soup Nazi yesterday, which is really cool. But um, I uh, was listening to the podcast and was like, man, I, w- I wonder if there's a Back to the Future podcast out there. Because, of course, there's a hundred million wrestling podcasts. There was the Seinfeld podcast. I was like, I wonder if there's something about Back to the Future because there's movies that I've always watched and watched and watched. And um, I went to the Apple store, did search on Back to the Future. I found like a couple of shows that had talked about the movie, but they talk about all kinds of movies. There was no centrally focused Back to the Future. This is all we're discussing every episode podcast. And I was like, God, man, I wish I wish there was one. And then I was like, wait a minute. I'm in radio. I do a podcast. What if I did the Back to the Future podcast? So I started it, and I, I was really just going to be like a short mini series leading up to Future Day. Mm. I was like, oh, I'll talk to all these people, as many people as I can get, talk about like these interesting things that I've always thought about the movie, and then you know, Future Day will come and go, and it'll be the end of it. So I started reaching out to people, and then a lot of people were really receptive to it. Um, Jeffrey Weisman, who I talked about earlier, um, who played George McFly in two and three. He was down to do the podcast. Uh, Claudia Wells was. Um, uh, Kevin Pike, who was a special effects supervisor on Back to the Future 1, and he did Jurassic Park and Jaws, all these great movies. So he he came on the podcast. He was really gracious with his time. And uh, next thing I knew, I just had all these interesting interviews with all these cool people leading up to Future Day. And I said, you know, might as well keep going. So I made it a, a serialized podcast where there's you know seasons of it, and uh, we just wrapped up. The sixth season of Back to the Future, the podcast, where I – in that uh, uh, batch of shows, I talked to Leah Thompson 
and Crispin Glover and Don Full of Love and all kinds of people. So it's been really cool to to get to know people through the podcast and to have these conversations like you and I are having, Daniel. And the podcast is really what led to the book. Without the podcast, um, I had a friend named Ken Knapsack who uh, wrote a book called Why We Love Star Wars for Mango Publishing. And so I got into conversations with him in the publishing house, and they're like, well, you know, we would love to have you. And they almost signed me to a publishing deal without any ideas. <laughs> and they were like, what, what, what would you like? They literally said, what would you like to write a book yeah. about? And so I was like, oh, you know, I love wrestling. Uh, I'd like to write a book about wrestling maybe. And and they're like, well, send in a couple pitches. And I had this idea about a Back to the Future book, and I sent that in to them. And they're like, we want to publish this one now, ASAP. You know, 35th anniversary is coming up. Let's get to work on it. And I really did my best to make the book an extension of the podcast. And the podcast is just it's, – it's a celebration. I love the movies. I'm an eternal optimist. I only see the good in everything. So I uh, just want to talk about how much I love these movies with people who love them equally. And um, it's been really cool to talk to so many people from the films and have them on the podcast in one way or another. Now, some of them are like promo radio interviews that I do for my radio show, which is what the Leah Thompson and Crispin Glover ones were. But – even the the ability to have them on and ask them even a little bit about Back to right. the Future, it's just been it's just been incredible for me. So that that was really the genesis of the idea of the podcast. Okay, you know I got to tell you I, I love the way you kind of worked that in with it because I knew your your interview with Crispin was a promo interview and it was I got to tell you it was pretty artful the way you were able to sneak in a couple of Back to the Future questions without you know pushing the limit a little bit there. Right. Crispin Glover is an absolute shame. I, I don't know if the movies would have been better or worse, but it's just a shame they didn't get him. Elizabeth Shue, I love Elizabeth Shue, and, and it's I think it was great casting. It's difficult because when you see this, this takes everything out. You know, it always takes me out of the reality when you see a new actor replaced. You know, and and uh, when you when when Elizabeth Shue replaced Claudia Wells, especially because she has such a big part in the second and third or the second movie. Um, it was very disappointing, but I mean, I, what was the, can, can you talk just really quickly? What was the reason? And, um, and did, have you gotten Elizabeth Shue on the, on your show or is she a, a target next? She, she's definitely a target. Um, I haven't been able to talk to her, but I've gotten to know Claudia Wells pretty well to where we'll, we'll exchange text here and there. And, um, the, the reason was Claudia did the first movie. They wanted her back for the second one, but her mother was battling an illness and she chose to take care of family rather than continue to pursue her Hollywood career. And she has no, from all my conversations with her, she has no regrets or qualms about not re reprising her role in the sequels. And they moved on and they got, they got Elizabeth Shue, who's a quality actress, obviously still working today and still as relevant as ever. Um, but I didn't notice it when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. When I was yeah. a kid. I did not notice it That's at true. all. I did not know that they changed the girlfriend out ever. It wasn't until I got older. I was like, wait a minute. That's not the same right, person. Yeah. And uh, by the way, Claudia Wells in 1985, I mean, drop dead gorgeous all-time Mount Rushmore beauty. Um, and she was great in the film. I would have loved to see her in two and three. But, yeah, that was the reason she had to take care of family. Wow. Yeah, that's unfortunate because it would have been great to see her because the roles expanded quite a bit. And it would have been nice to actually see her get some screen time because, I mean, she she's just so charming and so likable. And, and you just you you just rooting for him, you know, and you want to see her have her own little storyline, especially see herself in the future and all that. It's just it's it's great stuff. Uh, so the last thing I want to ask you, this is this I thought was really cool. And this is a moment from the book where you talk about your your least favorite cut. I don't I guess I want to put this. You talk about 
about different cuts in the movie, and right. this is the one that you think should have actually been in the movie. I agree with you 100%. I think, I think you make a great argument here. Can you talk about that really quickly uh, and, and why you liked it and what it is? Yeah. So, so what was weird to me as somebody who watched these movies over and over and over again, in Back to the Future 2, we talked about Biff stealing the time machine and coming back, old man Biff. And when he comes back, he's like all haggard and he's like hurting and he's slunched over and he's, he can barely walk. He looks like he's sweating. And I never really got I, that. I agree. I never too. understood what that yeah, was. Yeah. It didn't ever connect with me. And then when I was looking at the uh, – we did a, a, a series of shows on the podcast about it was good cut, bad cut. Was this a good idea to cut it out of the movie? Was it a bad idea? And one of them was Biff, the old man Biff scene. So in the extended version of that scene, you see Marty and Doc you know, come back and they're like, oh, what happened? You know, Let's, let's get out of here, Marty. And they're starting to take the time machine and, and Biff is hiding behind a car. Old man Biff, and he's slunched over, and he's he's like kind of shaking and sweating again. His hair's all haggard, and then he slowly disappears. And when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, that is a great uh -huh. scene. Uh -huh. It's telling you that old man Biff did something in the past that has now altered his future, the same way that happened to Marty in the first right. film. Marty uh, prevents his mom and dad from meeting, and then his brother and his sister disappear, and they get erased." Existence, yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, and Marty starts to go at the enchantment of the sea dance. You see his hand. So that was what happened with with old man Biff. We saw that. So when they cut it out and you just see him kind of haggard and, and hunched over and sweating, you don't really understand. But had that movie had that scene been left in the movie, we would still know. Wow. These 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 actions that Biff took to enrich himself eventually still don't pay off. Even if you are the richest man in the world, you disappear. So I tried to figure out what exactly happened to Biff. Like, okay, he disappears because he made some grave mistake, but what mm -hmm. was it? And there was actually on the Back to the Future website, there was a Q&A with Bob Gale where he was answering a lot of questions that Back to the Future fans have all the time, frequently asked questions. And it was on their facts page. And one of them was, why does Biff you know, disappear in, in, in a cut scene of Back to the Future 2. And he said, well, he and Lorraine end up getting married in the 90s and she uh, ends up shooting him and killing mm -hmm. him. So then that's why he disappeared. <laughs> right. So that was, that was the reason. But I think that if you left it in the movie, it was really a lot more meat on the bone. And it was just another 15 seconds. It was like 15 seconds or less. And I and I don't I still don't know if I ever get to talk to Bob Gale or Zemeckis in an interview. That's what might be the first question I ask yeah. him is why was that cut out? Because I think it could have been so important for the story of the movie and, and, and as a viewer understanding what we just saw. I, I mean, I completely agree. I, I had all the same questions you did, and I love that explanation because it, 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 it it's the 15 seconds that adds so much to the movie. You could have cut out 15 seconds of Michael J. Fox playing his daughter and his, his son. You could have cut out 15 seconds of that s silly stuff and put that into the movie, and I think it would have been a, a much better movie for it. You know, one last thing yeah. i got to tell you here before I go, because Back to the Future has one mistake, and it has to do with disappearing from time, and that is when after, so after George punches Biff, they go back into the dance. And so the next thing they do is they have to kiss on the dance floor. So then Marty has to go and play. And so he starts playing guitar. From that moment, the moment he chooses to play guitar, that change, and he looks at the, at the picture. Now that changes history because 
him going and him affect him changing uh, George is he's actively changed his own future, so he must actively change it back. When he goes on stage, he's done everything he can do. So the events that precede that are all going to have already are already going to happen. But we see his hand change, and then he falls down and says George as this other bully is like cut in right, and then George pushes him down. Well. Marty had nothing to do with that. Marty didn't. It's not like he heard him say, George, kiss Lorraine, you know, and he did not actually affect George's actions to push the bully to kiss Lorraine. So all of that would have happened just by him stepping on stage with the guitar. I know I'm nerding out here a little bit, but but I think that there's a there's a legitimate point that that is almost ex- completely extraneous. It, it does it does give us a couple of fun moments where he like jumps up and starts playing, but it's kind of extraneous. But but that's the playing with the you know the disappearing from time thing. You know that is interesting, and to be honest with you, I've never thought of that. And thinking of it right now, I totally see your point. Um, it would have it should have happened anyway. I don't think that. I wonder if Calvin Klein's shout for George. <laughs> no, you know, no, here, here you go. The, <laughs> Kilmore I, Gilmore's I doing the uh, the loyalist stuff. <laughs> I think that you yeah. know maybe George heard yeah. him and it was like that's right. You know, stand up for yourself, George. And then he shoves a bully down. That is, that is a that is a nitpick. It is funny though. <laughs> most people bring up. <laughs> Why is every good point that I make a nitpick? These are huge sweeping uh, notices. These are these are. Um, but but the the thing most people bring up is wouldn't his parents know him know know who Calvin Klein is when Marty grows yeah, up? They're like, yeah. Wait a minute, why don't you look just like Calvin Klein? I, I that's like the one that everyone brings that's up. That's a nitpick, me, and I never thought that yeah, was. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a nitpick. That's a nitpick. Nothing you. Yeah, Daniel, every time you've nitpick. said that word, that has not really been the case. But that is a nitpick <laughs> for sure. Uh, well, now so if, if we haven't covered everything, you know, you can get in touch with us. How do people find you? On uh, on social, I imagine you're on social media. Obviously, you got this great book, which is Back from the Future: A Celebration of Time, the greatest time travel story ever told. Story nailed ever told. it. Yes. Uh, how can people find the book and find you? The books everywhere that you normally get books: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, um, all all those great places you can find the book. And uh, if you want to get it from directly from me, you can hit me up on Twitter at Brad Gilmore uh, on Facebook, Instagram. It's I'm very easy to find. I'm the same all over the place. And uh, I'll be happy to get you a, an inscribed copy. I need to send one your way, Daniel, as well. But, um, yeah, please. The, um, yeah, you can find me there. You can also check out my other shows. We talked a little wrestling. I have a show called The Hall of Fame with Booker T. We do it twice a week talking about all things in combat sports. And there's a YouTube channel called The Reality of Wrestling, which uh, we just passed 360,000 subscribers, oh, wow. which I'm really happy about. We were at 18,000 just 18 months ago. So we've made some some pretty good jumps in the YouTube sphere. So check us out over there. And that's also where I house some celebrity interviews that I do um, as well. So just just check me out. You'll find me. Little, little Google search. You found 2011. So I mean, just, just do a Google search and you'll find some. Good I do stuff. some deep dives. I do some deep dives. Of yeah. More. Um, so now, now if it, when you I just for the audience, really quickly, when you when they order from you directly, will they get that? Give me a milk chocolate. Will you give that to everyone? Is that uh, if that's what they yeah. want, I will give okay. it to them. You know, I try to mix it up, but I think that that's what I should probably write from now on. Because if you're a true fan, that's the reason you're buying the book. You'll appreciate the reference. <laughs> no, I love it. Brad, I cannot tell you how much fun I've had. I, I, I've got a lot of notes. I've got tons of Back to the Future stuff. I may in, in get you, engage you in conversation on Twitter about some of this stuff, nitpicking or yeah. not. I think you're going to like some of these ideas because <laughs> um, I, I really had a whole new view of this movie. So, Brad, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It has been an absolute pleasure, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. 
Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you love the show, you got to subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and of course, Spotify. And if you get a chance, give us a little review and a five-star rating if you don't mind. It really helps us along. And if you want to know more about this episode, you can find links to everything we talked about on the Fascinating Nouns webpage, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can also find links to subscribe if you're not already on one of the major podcasting platforms. You can find images from the show, videos, all that stuff right there on the Fascinating Nouns webpage, along with our entire archive of episodes. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.